So you're having a busy week. Yeah. Busy's good, I guess, although... Yeah, it's okay. I'm, I'm looking forward to the weekend. Well, it's Friday afternoon. And oh, that's right. For... You work and people have weekends. I don't really have a weekend either because artists don't really have weekends. So That's, um, that's true. You're that 24, you're 24 seven. Yeah, even in our dreams. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue. Virgin Valley Artists Association welcomes you to the Art Box, recorded in our beautiful Mesquite, Nevada, and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association has something for everyone of all ages. Come and get creative with us at 15 West Mesquite Boulevard, or find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, or on Facebook as Mesquite Fine Art Center, also on Facebook, The Art Box. But I like to get to know Hi, Rochelle. Welcome to The Art Box. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. And we're doing this. Um, Linda and I are in Mesquite, Nevada, at the Steam Center, our studio. Rochelle is in Oakland. I'm in Oakland, California. I uh, live down in Ohlone Land. Okay. And the reason I know Rochelle and bugged her to get on this is Rochelle was part of the Modern Desert Markings exhibit, the Marjorie Barrett Museum at UNLV in Las Vegas. Rochelle happened to take her life in her hands. I think you rode with me the day after Jean Lake, right? I rode with Rayette. First off, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a research-based artist, so I make various series of artworks, usually like two or three series at a time, based on a specific environment or a specific material that environment comes from. Um, and I will research that either physically, materially, and by visiting the site, but also through satellite imagery and tracking these different landscapes through through satellite uh, Earth images. Was your art always this way, or were you schooled in the more traditional art? That's a great question. I was very much traditional. I grew up um, in New Jersey, and I don't come from a family of artists whatsoever, very practical people. And so when my understanding of what art was, was to be able to draw and paint really well for the first probably like 20-ish years of my life, I really focused on being able to depict life realistically um, and create that illusion in paint and in uh, drawing materials. And then I got to a point where I was wondering why I was wanting to, you know, replicate things so lifelike, especially when we have technologies that can do it for us and um, what's that function. And so the work started evolving from there. I looked online and saw a lot of pictures of your salt studio, which you said you worked on that project during the pandemic and you did quite big pieces didn't you yeah i did i've been doing that series for about 10 years i started in 2013 and the reason why i started working with salt is because of my interest in the san francisco bay and trying to understand um, this landscape where I in, live uh, materially through through salt itself. So I found a really interesting 
rabbit hole I went down that I'm still going down <laughs> next uh, currently. Yeah, so I've worked pretty large. Um, my largest pieces to date have been eight feet diameter tondos. It's all was all made with salt from um, hand harvested from the San Francisco Bay, and just doing a lot of research on the ecosystem down there, the estuary throughout the Bay Area, kind of the unique environment that fosters and how that's been so pivotal to the development of the Bay Area up until this very day. It's still a very interesting spot because it's an area where we are focusing on restoration. A lot of the, the salt evaporation ponds that had existed for over 200 years, um, a lot of those areas, like 90% of them were donated back to California and have been working um, to be restored in various ways. But it's this space that's that we have to really consider what, you know, when we think about restoring landscape, thinking about, you know, it's not just reverting back to how things were before we industrialized the space and before humans, you know, touch foot on the landscape. It's more of how do we negotiate with all how nature has adapted because it has and still rehabilitate the landscape but not destroy the ecosystem that developed because of the the industry that lived there if that makes sense for example this the salt evaporation ponds became a pivotal resting point for migratory birds from the pacific flyway the um like a, a bird highway basically from Alaska down to uh, South America because so many other spots these migratory birds had used for resting spaces had been developed this was a really is is a really uh, important place for them so just thinking through you know not only this specific location but how does this space even play into a larger system so, like such as migratory birds that spans thousands thousands of miles. Who manages that land? It's they believe it's owned by the state of California. It's the South Bay Salt Pond Restoration Project. Okay. I would encourage you to look it up. It's super cool. The South Bay Salt Pond Restoration Project, going since 2005, is the largest tidal wetland restoration project on the West Coast. When complete, the project will restore 15,100 acres of industrial salt ponds to a rich mosaic of tidal wetlands and other habitats. It sounds like you're a scientist, environmentalist, and artist. I think... I, I think one of the jobs about of being an artist is, is asking a lot of questions and analyzing the world around you, not only visually, but in all ways. And so uh, it kind of naturally goes, comes into play. I think that it, art definitely inspires a, a huge curiosity and that that's definitely what propels my projects more than anything else I'd say. And experience life experience too. Can you talk about the power of salt? Sure. Yeah, I mean, salt is significant in almost every culture. It's the only rock we eat. So just think about that for a minute. And I always like to think about our bones are made of minerals, right? And so essentially, we we are all built upon rocks. So thinking about the only rock we ingest is almost like a way in which we take in the earth. And then just culturally. It's used as, it's known as being able to purify spaces, cleanse evil energies, 
It's referenced in a lot of important religious manuscripts. We physically need it to survive. <laughs> um, it's what helps the synapses in our muscles, it helps us move around. And it's changed the way the world, that we've inhabited the world. I mean, if we think about different wars that were fought or um, maps that were drawn for salt pilgrimages or religious rituals or even animal migrations for salt, it's just so essential. One of the reasons why I've, after 10 years, I'm still working on it with it because it's just, it holds so much. Yeah, that's interesting. Can you talk about the early inhabitants? And if, if you want to talk about this, but this I found interesting, maybe educate our listeners on the early inhabitants of the San Francisco Bay Area, obviously before it was called the San Francisco Bay. Sure. San Francisco Bay Area is home to the Ohlone, uh, or at least where, where I am, and then a different Alonia is, is an overall kind of name for just different small, smaller tribes that existed within the San Francisco Peninsula and the East Bay down in the South Bay. Also, there's record of them harvesting salt. They would basically put like a twigs or like sticks at the edge of the bay and then just let the natural salt evaporation occur and like crystallize these sticks of salt. That's what I read. And then they would take it to their cooking areas and then that's how they would have their salt and salt their food. They would also use it a lot for trade. Uh, there was a lot of trade that existed between the coastal um, indigenous population and the inland indigenous populations. It was a huge resource for that too. I remember reading that is also, and I, I, can, I read this and I cannot find where I read this, so I can't fact check it, but I thought it was beautiful and it stuck with me that it was also an exchange for friendship during trade. So it was a way of extent you know, building community as well. Rochelle, I love the pictures on your site of the um, suns and the salt and ash moon and other other moons. I found the picture fascinating that showing four strong men picking up one of your pieces. They're quite heavy, right? They can get heavy. I mean, it depends on scale, but they can be heavy. And some of your pieces found their way to Europe, or? Yeah, yeah, true. I have a couple of pieces in Madrid, Spain. That's fantastic. Yeah, and, and speaking of that, you, you, you've just been uh, traveling international for a project, right? It's true, yeah. Yeah, I did this really interesting project with, with but I, and I've never done anything like it. And um, I've learned a lot, but I was invited to respond to the salt ponds of Anguilla, which is a small island in the Eastern Caribbean. It's a, a British Virgin Island. And so I was sent 90 pounds of salt from this island and asked to make artwork with it. And then I recently flew out with the artwork and had an exhibition that's up right now and did a, a series of uh, events. So I did a workshop and then I did a uh, dinner with a local chef there and w with the salt from the island. And it was pretty amazing. I got to go and harvest some of the salt and really speak to a lot of the local communities about their relationship with salt and just the history of salt on the island. It's a over 400-year-old history. 
these were salt plantations that uh, Africans were taken and labored on these bases. And since it's become a huge, you know, it was a huge economy for the island for hundreds of years. And even after, even like in the 20th century, it was a, a place where it was pretty much the main economy of the island up until the 80s when it kind of moved to tourism. And it was just a lot of people I spoke to had family members who had worked on at these salt ponds or just had a lot of just told me stories about how they would cook with this very specific salt because it's very hard they're hard dense crystals um it's very different than the salt in the bay area and instead of breaking up these big chunks of salt they would know exactly what proportion uh, they would need and how how long to leave it in whatever they were cooking to salt their food and it was just really um <coughs> really a special way of engaging with a, a body of work uh, and with a community. Rochelle, I was not able to see your piece in the modern desert markings. Would you like to tell our viewers, uh, for those who were like me, not able to see it, what you did and, and how you did it? Oh, yeah, totally. That's a great question. We've mostly talked about salt, which is one of my main projects, but another ongoing series I have been doing since about 2016 is going to different sites in the American West that are usually they're remote and have long legacies of industry or human impact in some way. Also tracking them simultaneously with satellite imagery and then um, private source travel satellite imagery. And then from that satellite imagery, I um, am able, I'm a research ambassador with a satellite company, so I'm able to access these images and then I draw them photorealistically uh, to kind of create more of a open, accessible image for everyone to see. And it's a conversation about what's private and what's public, um, especially in our visual culture and our relationship to landscape and private and public lands. Most of it, a lot of this is done on public lands. For modern desert desert markings, I visited the site of Jean Dry Lake, which was where Jean Chaglet and Michael Heiser both had uh, a piece in the 70s, actually Tinglay, I think was the 60s, and responding to that site, responding to what uh, land art is and could be at the contemporary moment. When I went on the site visit with Brea and uh, Steve, I had a satellite, when I got home, I downloaded those satellite images from that day and I composited some images together and then I drew them photorealistically. And then a part of my practice is also kind of comparing image to material. And so I did with uh, Rayette's help, I was able to collect some specimens um, and make sure I wasn't disrupting any any environment <laughs> or habitat with her approval. And then I made a piece with that too. So it's an opportunity to think through, there are two pieces and one was mostly from the dirt of the place of Jean Dry Lake. And the other one was a highly rendered photorealistic drawing uh, of an aerial image of the lake, uh, the dry lake. And its intention was to think through a landscape and a place in both material and image and the different ways in which we experience them. And then also just reflecting back in terms of land art, how the most of the 
public has been able to experience Lander, which has been through images and documentation of some sort. It hasn't actually been going to the site. So it's a conversation about that, too, and how we experience place now. Right, because most of the land art um, is not visible now. Mm-hmm. So, well, that was interesting. Thank you for explaining that. So you want to talk about the Silver Peak Project? Sure. So, like, the Silver Peak is also very, very similar in the sense that it was, the Silver Peak is this, uh, a place in Nevada where it has been um, a mining site for uh, hundreds of years, and it has kind of trim it's gone from um i believe silver to iron to ghost town and between ghost towns and had this like boom and bust of resource and then nothing um and so it's a really interesting story of just how we treat landscape and mineral extraction and kind of these these cycle it, it, it goes through these cycles with with it its contemporary moment of whatever whatever is of interest at the time and at this point it's the only active um, lithium site of uh, uh, only active site of lithium extraction in the country there are, um, and I'll have to I haven't actually triple checked that at this point because I know that there have been many that are in process of being developed um. mining for lithium seems to be a hot topic these days Rochelle is correct Albemarle operates the only active lithium mine in the United States at Silver Peak, Nevada. At that mine, lithium is extracted from brine, a liquid found beneath the ground. Uh, at the time it was, and so I I did a couple site visits. Um, I dug clay at the site and made uh, some ceramic pieces. I did a, a whole series of drawings and um, open access um, photographic work based on satellite images. I also did, I'm also working on an artist book. It's been an ongoing project just because it has a lot of richness, not only in its, and I think it has a, its story is an, is one that is almost like, a, it's a story that I think is repeated a lot in terms of how we um, cycle through our landscapes. And it's a kind of a way of, thinking about how we can perhaps move through thinking and using our mineral extraction differently. I think I got a quote from you about getting back on Mother Nature's good side. And I was wondering how you're going to do that and how you suggest everyone else does it. Yeah, that, that's not my quote. That was actually some, oh, like a write-up of a, of a show I had in 2017. And now I'm trying to remember. Oh, my God, that 2017. <laughs> that was a hundred. Yeah. That was that was a pandemic ago. <laughs> I know, I know. I think what that writer was trying to, how we can think through the materials that come from the earth a little differently or mindfully. But that show was very much a, a material investigation. I think it's so it's so easy to forget that you know the what we're using to power our conversation even is all from the earth you know and it's it's metals and that creates these technologies and um you know even the salt on your table it's just so easy to take for granted what is 
just right in front of us. Do you want to talk about, there's another um, thing I read about, the space program. And when I read the space program, I was like, oh, okay, Rochelle's going to be blasted into outer space. But no, the <laughs> space program is about space for a residency. It looks like, mm-hmm. to me, it looks like quite the creativity heaven. Yeah, so I'm supposed to do that residency in the fall, and um, I'm very excited. They have a lot of different options. They have metalworking and um, a lot of sculptural options, and then they have silk screening as well and screen printing. I mean, like, yeah, I haven't. I'm. It's residencies are interesting because you don't really know what you're going to get until you're there, and they t- kind of take on a life of their own. So I can't speak too much about it, but it is a, it's a program that's been going on for a couple of years now, and it seems to be a really cool one because it does offer a lot of resources to artists and stipends and a lot of support. And this is a you know the Bay Area is and it is a tough place to to exist as an artist. So it's nice that there are options like that for that support artists further and help them build their career more. I noticed you have a piece in the Women of Northern California. Yeah, I had that show actually came down very recently, but it was uh, I think about 30 artists from the last, from the 20th century into the present uh, of females who have, are female identifying artists who have made their work and their life in here in Northern California. And um, I was honored to be included in that exhibition. There were a lot of artists there who I admired. My I, my mentor, Hung Lu, was also in the show, which is always amazing to be with someone you so deeply respect and who's given so much to you. Let's see. I always forget what I have going on, <laughs> which is silly. But um, I'm in an upcoming group show at the um, Marin Museum of Contemporary Art in June over the summer, um, through the summer and through August, I believe. And that's with, I think, 11 artists. Most I think most of them are or all of them are Bay Area artists bonding to different aspects of landscape. The show is on land. It's called On Land. And so I'm really looking forward to that as well. And then I have a couple things that are in the works that I am not yet talking about, but I will let you know some commissions and um, various things that are keeping me pretty busy. It sounds very interesting and something that would keep you very busy. When did you decide that you were an artist? How old were you? I decided that, well, I think I've heard this a lot, but I do think that art kind of just chooses you. I have a distinct memory of being in either, I don't know if I was in preschool or kindergarten, but I think I was around five and it was the first time I painted. Like a little easel was set up and I dipped my brush into some red paint and then just put the paint on the paper and that first brush stroke I was like I don't know what this is but I need to do this for the rest of my life oh, <laughs> oh, wow. really? that's, that's great. amazing yeah. <laughs> yeah and so I just mm-hmm. kind of followed that it's been it's kind of I sometimes sometimes I feel like it's a little bit of a curse because being an artist is super strange um, there's no there's no path and nothing makes sense and it definitely puts you outside of different more normal ways of uh of living mm-hmm. <laughs> but um it's it's definitely led me to some interesting things and I feel very lucky to have this 
a gift, basically. I think of it as a gift and in the sense that I will never be bored and I, I will always feel inspired. And I, sometimes I forget that not everyone has that. And I, I, I'm constantly, no matter how hard being an artist can be because of its un, unsteadiness and because of its rejection. And there's you know so much difficulty and just even like logistics of healthcare and various um, taxes and just normal life things that you're kind of forced to do as an adult is a little harder as an artist I find when sometimes like whenever that feels really difficult I always try to remind myself that of what a, a gift this is yeah I would say and I'll for me I'll say thank you because you're also giving us a gift oh absolutely oh. Oh. Yeah, it feels, and that's the other thing about being an artist is that you like you just do it because you feel like, or at least I did it because I just felt like I, I had to. I didn't really have a choice. It, it was just what something I knew I needed to be doing with my life. The world doesn't like greet you and be like, "Yes, this is what you should do. Here's everything you need." You know, it's it's very much like, "Oh, we're going to reject you for 20 years and you know not give you any external validation." for a long time and you just have to like continue to believe that this is the what you need to be doing <laughs> so so along along that line can you tell us about your personal breakthrough art piece <sighs> let's see i think breakthrough art piece i've never even thought about that i would say I, I think maybe my first salt circle was pretty much a breakthrough and it wasn't even a breakthrough because it took me four years to make <laughs> um, but once I was able to make it and make it as stable as I could, and it worked. It was a pretty big deal. I think learning to trust myself in something so strange, too. Like, I was told I was making this work in grad school, and I was told that it was a waste of time because it wasn't archival, and you would never be marked as successful with the market and who's going to want anything made of salt and this and that I just didn't listen because I was so interested in the material and it's been really amazing to see how many doors have opened because of this body of work and how how important it is just to not listen sometimes to other people and if you believe in mm -hmm. something yeah and I think that say that that's taught me quite a bit of just kind of getting outside the box and creating your own definition about what art is and what it So you, you just talked about your breakthrough piece. Let me ask you about your commercial breakthrough art piece. Mm -hmm. Or is that it? I mean, I, that's the thing. It's the, the crazy thing about it is that it, it wasn't overnight. It had, like, it was, I kept making the work because I was sincerely interested in it. And then, you know, after about four years of making it, it started getting some traction. But, you know, there were four quiet years. <laughs> You know, so I think that just so much of it is just hanging on. It sounds like you believe there are no rules for art, or if there are, you're going to break those. I think it might be a little more fun and interesting to break it, yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah, I think the Silver Peak series, actually, to be honest, the, that was fa fairly recent. Maybe I made that in 2021. Or I'd started the Silver Peak series in 2018, but I the work that I kind of, when I really pushed it to a bigger scale using um, archival pigment prints on aluminum, I was able to think of that series in a different way and I think push that a little more and just be okay with working on 
these projects for years, you know, and realizing they don't have to churn it out every year. I get a new project or a new body of work or, well, I can continue a body of work rather than create something entirely new. Rochelle, you, you, make, you make a living out of art. And, and not too many people make a living out of art. Um, one of the questions we had, basic questions, was do you make art to sell or for your soul? Um, obviously, to feed your soul, you have to sell. But is, is there a balance in there? Do you ever, have, do, you ever do a piece of art that you, that you don't particularly like, but you know it's going to sell? No, I think, I think it's really important to be transparent as possible about these kinds of things because it is like that's the strange thing about being an artist is that there's this opacity like you never ever especially with like social media culture where everyone just is great <laughs> you never really know you know what what's happening or what's, how difficult or you know if, if someone's struggling but i think that it's i work on a lot of commissions and i'm lucky and that i enjoy doing commissions and it's very close enough to the work I already make and that's kind of what gets me through a lot that's not something I would ever have expected either um but I do think there is a lot I not I think I know there is a lot of stress financially uh when you depend fully on your artwork and you do have to do things that you don't really like I actually I teach I do other things just to make art full-time because I am very uncomfortable with some of the things I would have to do. I don't want to bend my work very much, especially my more research-based work, um, my work with satellites, you know, drawings don't have a high price point. I just, so I I teach, I carry, I do a lot of other things that are engaged with art. I think that's also kind of what feeds my art too, is a resistance to my time. It's always like a check and seeing how much I really want to be making it. It's great to know that for the last few years, I have been able to live solely off my work, but it's also, it's a difficult thing if you're trying to plan for a long-term situation or, you know, in terms of like, if you ever want a savings account or retirement, or um, if you have a child or you want a family, I mean, those things uh, are difficult to have inconsistent monthly or annual income. It's kind of a give and take. And the way I think about it in terms of, and the way things have gone for me is that I've had chapters where I have, I've worked full time as an artist and that's been great, but I've also worked for a couple years at a time with jobs and that's been great in a different way. And so I have a very long view of my art practice it's not going to go away. It's been with me as long as I can really remember. And so I try not to take that kind of, I just try to be as sincere to the work as I can be. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Thank you. Turning towards the future, what excites you about your art, Rochelle? These are great questions. We researched you deeply. You know, we used our, <laughs> we, we, we used our research assistant. Ha ha. <laughs> Pushing your own limit and um, seeing the different places where your art can go. I mean, just this, this project I did in the Caribbean, I would have never guessed for that to happen. The kind of conversations I was able to have, would have never imagined. So I think just like, it's amazing when you just make the work and put it out in the world, how, you know, if the world responds. And I, th I think what you're saying is you're evolving. 
you're constantly evolving. I hope so. <laughs> Rochelle, do you dream about your art? I do. I'm never really making it, but I'm always like, I dream. No, that's not true. Sometimes I see art. Yeah, I dream about it. Not not art that I I'm making at the moment usually, but like I'll be in the studio or I'll see artwork or I'll be in an exhibition of mine. But I don't dream up artwork. I I kind of wish I did. I've been trying to do that. It seems oh, to really? be a little more efficient with studio time, but it doesn't work for me. Yeah, it's it's interesting how that question's answered because mm-hmm. some people dream about it. Some people have nightmares. Uh-huh. So, goodness, I wouldn't want that. So, if you could go back in time in the art world, where would you go and why? That is a good question. I would go, oh, gosh, I'm going, like, to 75 different places. Um, I would really want to experience New York City from 60s through 70s. That's always something I've romanticized in my mind, um, that, that space. Uh, that includes, you know, the land art artists and that we just addressed in modern desert markings and just having grown up outside of new york city and worked in new york city for 10 years and i really have a love for that city and that the creativity that that happened there i was always kind of romanticizing it even like the 1950s with the abstract expressionists i just want to see that i want to see if it's really all the hype and then i would just love to see those cave paintings you know or like uh, what the what the actual colors of the Egyptian temples were. I've always kind of fantasized about that as well. Good. So wow. you, so yeah, you would be taking a lot of trips back in time. <laughs> she yeah. would. She would. If we can dream of that, we can. When you start your art, if especially if you're starting a new idea do you work that out and all of it out in your mind before you start or or does your piece evolve as you work on it whenever i start a new idea i basically feel like i've forgotten everything i have no idea how to make anything Mm -hmm. (laughs) and tends to be a lot of failure to be honest and i've gotten and i'm overall just kind of terrified um, and I've gotten a little more used to it now, and I try not to like have a crisis over that beginning stages when you don't quite know what you're making yet, but you know you're getting trying to get somewhere, and you feel like you're not getting anywhere. I just know it's part of the process, and it's part of this cycle. It's the part I dread, to be honest, and it's the hardest part for me. It's kind of the like first trimester in pregnancy where you're kind of where the woman's like morning sick and doing all the hard work of building the spine and the brain mm-hmm. <laughs> and the eyeballs and toenails and things like that yeah it but then if i've made a piece similar to it i also something that i've been really excited about that i've noticed that i've developed pretty strongly is my visual imagination and i can kind of walk into a space and get a good visual on what like what a work would look like in that space or even with for myself pieces now I, I just draw everything out first before I make everything in terms and think about like color shape scale like materials if I'm gonna be framing it in steel or and I'll just kind of get all that worked out first and that's been really fun because I don't I, I have enough visual memory of making that work that I can kind of build it in my mind now that's but like if I'm 
if I'm working on a project like the Silver V project, if I was I dug my own clay and I made some pieces there, and that was just felt like a million failures. But like the concept was there, and, and it was important that I use that material. So I kept trying to like work through it. And I'm actually still working through better resolving those pieces. So I think it it just depends on what I'm working on, I guess. That's so encouraging for novice artists to hear because we see you successful artists and all that you do and we think it it just probably flows from you that you never have to do any problem solving it just it just all comes out and it's perfect the first time so we appreciate you sharing that with us oh my gosh yeah of course no it's not it's, I'm not just like flowing with inspiration at all times it feels very much like a excavation <laughs> more than anything else okay so sometimes it feels like work oh it's definitely work okay. and problem solving which is what i always say art is is problem solving well you we have our we have our math teacher here linda so linda's always in the problem art is problem solving right. and there i i have used trigonometry in my work you know really Sure, that's yeah. exciting. I mean, it, if you're ever working at large scales with a lot of different forces, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, definitely geometry. Okay, one dumb question while you're doing this. No dumb questions. No dumb questions? No, dumb qu- no I mean, like, no, no, there are no dumb questions. Oh, I thought you meant I couldn't ask this no, question. No, no, of course you don't ask the question. No. So, this is a fluff question. Um, while, okay. you're, while you're in your studio... But maybe you just blew it all up because you said you're out digging your own clay. So you're not just in your studio doing art. You're preparing. You're gathering your elements. But in any case, do you listen to music, radio, book on tape? I do all of it. Yeah. Yeah, I do all of it. Um, I I try to listen to music as much as I can. But um, if I have – if I'm drawing – I'll have a thing where I listen to music in the beginning because it's the hardest part and I can't have any words because I have to think really hard. Um, Usually in the beginning of making anything, I have to just have no words because I find that too distracting. But then once I find a flow, like a a drawing, I think for the, um, actually for the modern desert markings drawing, I listen to the whole book full 21 hours of ministry for the future by kim stanley robinson wow um, yeah yeah and then i had to li- and that was just i didn't i had to listen to a bunch of other things too because it wasn't i, I, I that drawing was more than 21 hours wow yeah yeah so it when i'm sitting in one place working on a on one thing like a long highly rendered drawing definitely audiobooks um, but not in the beginning um, but my salt pieces I kind of do I listen to I do it all I really like public radio I like um, I listen to Calix which is the Berkeley UC Berkeley radio a lot yeah what message if any would you like people to see with your art I don't think it would be fair for me to just I think prescribe anything mm-hmm. I just hope I, it raises questions and it, it inspires them to find some curiosity about art making but also about environment especially if they're living in proximity or have visited the places that I'm addressing in my work so rather than having a message you'd rather start a conversation exactly yeah it's a nice way of putting it 
Ooh, I like that. Rochelle, what has inspired you this past week? We've had really beautiful weather in the Bay Area this week, and we haven't had that in this past season. So just, I think, being being outside, I've been tending to my garden. Or last weekend, I spent a lot of time tending to my garden. With my, I have a three-year-old, and she helped me a lot. And kind of being outside, being like and playing with her and we planted a bunch of some lettuces and some asparagus together just having kind of facilitating a relationship to the earth through my daughter is really important and inspiring i mean it's the only what what inspired it i'm i'm not a gardener i didn't grow um this is i'm very new at this so it was definitely a pandemic project that i've just continued because it's awesome one of the things that continues to inspire is it's the only way i can get my kid to eat anything green Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but well, that's kind of cool. I mean, I definitely didn't have an experience where I was able to pick something off a of vine or you know, and just eat it. It's cool that I can give that to her. You know, a, a, along those lines, um, when I interviewed Alicia, which I think Alicia Curlin was a really good interview. She has a garden in her front yard, and so besides doing the gardening with her daughter, um, she says how being in the front yard, she gets to meet her neighbors. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. And that's, tell her I want to go come see your garden sometime in your front yard. I really like the idea of that. Yeah. I mean, what's really fun is that we, we've been really successful in growing, like, uh, greens like kale and chard. And our, I live in a place where my neighbors are very, very close to them, but we're all friends. So it's, we always invite our neighbors to come. We give them food all the time. And um, my neighbor gives me lemons from her lemon tree. And it's this nice kind of exchange where we never have to, buy greens or you know there's it, we just we just kind of live off of our block a little bit that is nice mm-hmm. and that it that sounds very inspiring to to share your love of of the land of the earth with your daughter yeah i, I grew up in a place with like a lot of concrete mm-hmm. <laughs> not many you know and just um there wasn't really a i didn't have any help with kind of facilitating any kind of connection or there was not any conversation around that and I think we have that from the very beginning that that relationship you can see it in, in kids just loving to be outside and wanting to climb trees and loving dirt and so just figuring out how to um, encourage that and foster a positive relationship with that. Sure. Well, Rochelle, we thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. We love yeah, your your art. And it, your art is very inspiring. Thank you. And it's, it's, thank you for producing these podcasts. I've listened to some, and it's been really cool to hear more about artist practices and just your questions. And um, I really appreciate you um, asking me to be on this. So thank you. Thank you very much. Broadcasting from Mesquite, Nevada, in the scenic Mojave Desert, the Art Box sponsors thank you for listening. To find our next and past podcasts, find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, where all accompanying images and links are available on the Art Box page. Questions, comments, opinions, and concerns can be sent to artboxvv at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of its hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Virgin Valley Artists Association.